Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to be together uh, to consider the gospel. Um, the gospel announced first through you in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth, uh, to preach, to live a perfect life, to die and to be raised from the dead. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your spirit that now empowers your people um, to, to repent of our sins. You empower us to believe and you empower us to live and proclaim the gospel. We ask, Lord, that as we go through this class together, that your spirit would fill us, that you would guide us, um, that we would grow more and more in love with you, the God of the gospel. Lord, that we would understand the gospel better and that we would be feeding ourselves on it. And Lord, that we would see that we are not alone in gospel ministry, that you have put us in the church. And Lord, that you would just help us grow in boldness, that we would go and speak and play our part on this gospel team. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So one of the big questions that we're going to be asking in this class is what is evangelism? I'm not going to answer that right out the gate. I want us to keep that in the back of our mind. What is evangelism? What do you think of when you think of evangelism? I know what I think of when I think of evangelism. I think of fear. A lot of times I think of worry. Um, there's times where I am with, I'm in an environment. I feel like the Lord wants me to open up my mouth to share the gospel and my heart starts pumping. Uh, but we're going to be talking about what exactly is evangelism and how it is that we can be plugged into what God is doing so that we are joyful, bold evangelists, part of this evangelism team called the church. So this is one of our equipping school classes. This is actually part of our theology in in history, history class, uh, evangelism being part of our theology. We spent two sessions talking about systematic theology, but that theology should flow out of us into something that we call evangelism. After we spend seven weeks on evangelism, we're going to go in and talk about church history. So, um, so we'll do seven weeks of this and then we'll, we'll jump into church history the way we're actually titling this class is teaming up for evangelism. You are not alone. And, and if, I, if you get nothing else out of this class, what I would like you to understand is that evangelism is a team sport, that you have not been saved to be by yourself. You've been saved by a God who's put you into a body and you are now part of a team. And as part of that team, you've been gifted with gifts that are used to build up the rest of the body, including bringing more people into that body. And so that's kind of the big theme and thesis of this class is that God is the primary evangelist and we get to be a co-labor with what he's really been doing since eternity past and he joins us together with other team members, our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
to go out and participate in a sport that's already been won. And so we get to just join God in what he is doing. We are like little mice on the back of a lion. And this lion is moving. And this lion has won. And we get to go along with the victory and be a part of what he is doing. That's kind of the big picture of this class. Now, the handout in the back gives you our schedule for the next seven weeks on the front part of it. And then there's notes on the back. And so if you look at the schedule there, you'll see um, our basic topics. Um, Today, we're going to do an introduction and overview. And then on the right, you're going to see suggested reading. Um, I'm going to have scripture passages, but also we're going to have some resources, suggested resources that we'd like you to consider Um, Two of those resources are on the back. There's two gospel tracks. One is our church track called Life's Most Important Questions. We're going to ask you guys to read through this uh, this week. And then Two Ways to Live. This is another gospel track. We're going to put some resources into your hands. Um, Then there's a couple other resources. One of them you can get for free online or you can order it. It's called Around the Wicked Gate by C.H. Spurgeon. This is a free resource because it's part of the public domain. You can just download it. Or if you want to buy a physical copy, this is an excellent resource to get your mind around the gospel in a simple way that gives you great illustrations on how to. And then there's the gospel primer. We will be referring to the prose part of the gospel primer. This is like uh, the longer version, but we have copies that you can get at our table on the way out. Just get the short prose version. We're going to ask you guys to read through the short prose version um, for part of this class. So that gives you the the kind of overview. Um, We'll be spending a lot of time in the Bible, but referring a lot to these particular resources as well. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Open to Ephesians 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. And I want to share with you a verse that I preached this last Thursday at UCR. Um, There's a number of us that go to UCR on a a pretty much weekly basis. And I go to a particular corner where students park and they have to walk under this bridge. And then they come to this stoplight and the light, they're, they're gathered there. Anywhere between 20 to sometimes 70 students and professors are all waiting to cross the street. And they're only there for about 60 to 120 seconds, depending on whether anybody remembers to hit the button or not. And and so I come prepared to preach a very quick gospel message to expose people to the gospel. And this is the passage that I preach through in just a few seconds. I'm going to try to do it right now. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You know, the gospel, the good news that we have in the Bible is a free gift of God, that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to give salvation freely to people who would simply believe. 
Let me just give you a, a physical illustration to help you understand this. God has given us all bodies, I see here. And you know that God built into your body a thirst recognition mechanism. You never had to go to college to learn that you were thirsty. Your body suddenly feels thirsty and you want to drink. And guess what? God puts you on a planet that's full of H2O. Good thing we weren't born on Mars. There is water everywhere. In fact, there's some water right here on my back pocket. I was wearing it in my back pocket the other day. There's, I have water right here. <clears throat> and so God gives us thirst recognition mechanism. He gives us water. But you know what? I can look at the water and still not quench my thirst. I must drink in order to get the water. Um, but guess what? The Lord... He has given us bodies that all I do is I put the water up to my mouth. My mouth knows what to do. My tongue knows what to do. I've got swallowing mechanisms. It brings water down to my stomach. I don't have to think about how to send the H2O throughout my body. It just works on its own. This is all God's grace. God gives us water. He gives us thirst recognition mechanisms in our body. We drink and it sends the H2O throughout our bodies. In the same sense, God has rained Jesus Christ down from heaven to the earth to live a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, so that if we would simply drink Jesus into our lives by faith, he can quench our spiritual thirst, save us from sin, Satan and hell, and for him to have an eternal life here on the earth and in heaven. Would you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Now, a lot of times the light would change when I'm about halfway through that, and so I have to move quickly. But I'm just trying to expose people to the gospel, people who aren't, they didn't come to that stoplight because they wanted to hear about Jesus. They came to that stoplight to get to classes that they're uh, intending to take, but now they've, they're getting exposed to the gospel. So let me ask you guys a couple questions. What would possess somebody to stand on a corner and talk about Ephesians 2 8? What would possess somebody to do that? Let me ask a couple other questions. Because I was standing on a corner this last Thursday talking about Ephesians 2 8, how does that make you feel? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel like if I don't go do what Pastor Mike did this last Thursday, God's not going to like me? Do I have to go stand on a corner at UCR in order to earn God's favor? Do I have anything to offer whatsoever? What do you think about somebody preaching the gospel out in a public place? Does that even work today? Is that biblical? Aren't we just scaring people away? Is that the only way to share the gospel? Is that one way to share the gospel? Is it a biblical way to share the gospel? What is God's role for you? And how does anybody even open up their mouth to talk about something so foolish as the gospel, let alone preach it? And what's the terminology that the Bible uses when it talks about evangelism? Is the Bible, does it commend the preaching of the gospel? Do people have to be out in the open air? Can they be in their homes? And what exactly really motivates, what's the ultimate motivation to want to go out and share this message? Do we motivate people by guilt? Do I motivate you simply by saying, hey, if you don't go out and preach the gospel, everybody's going to go to hell and it's your fault? Does that motivate you to preach the gospel? What ultimately motivates us to want to open up our mouth and say things that are going to cause some people to not like us and other people to be so thankful that we did open up our mouth to preach the gospel? 
Those are some of the questions that we're going to try to answer in this class. And just so, so you don't think that, wow, Pastor Mike is this really bold, amazing evangelist. Let me just tell you the other side of the story. That reality is I got saved from a living babysitter who never did any kind of open air preaching that I know of. She just trusted the Lord, came to live in my home when uh, when we were kids. I was eight years old and told my dad, I'll come work for you if you let me talk to the kids about the gospel. He said, as long as you don't talk to me about it, you can talk to the kids about it. And she preached the gospel to us every day for about five years. And I heard the gospel every day I came home from school. Every day when I got up and she made me breakfast, I was hearing about the gospel from this a New York lady from Buffalo, right? And 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 it didn't sink in all at once. There are many times that I called upon Christ, but it wasn't until I was 14 when she had me come in and watch Chuck Smith on the television that the, finally the lights went on and I went into my room and I called upon Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I'm so thankful that this New Yorker lady who didn't know how to drive, who hadn't yet learned how to quit smoking, who drank coffee like a bandit, loved Jesus Christ, shared the gospel with me, and God opened up my eyes to believe. And then I began to go out, and as Christ had saved me, there was something in me where I did want to talk to other people about what had happened to me. I didn't quite understand the gospel yet, but there was something in me that wanted to tell people about the gospel. I remember the, right after becoming saved, our band went on a band trip up to San Francisco. I brought a bunch of Bibles with me. I didn't know much about the gospel, but I, I asked for people to pray for me. And I went and I started passing out gospels in San Francisco on the street. I don't know what possessed me to do that kind of thing. and But one day I was talking to one of my friends. His name is Dale Davis. He might listen to this Sunday school class. And I'm talking to him about the gospel in our room. And Dale, he was 14. I'm 14. Dale was a guy that got under my skin. And I don't know what we were talking about, but I'm talking about Jesus. Next thing I know, I slug him. I punch this guy in the face. He was so shocked by what had happened. He, he had no response. I want to come into you or say to you that that's not the best method for sharing the gospel. And but crazy thing is, is about a year later, Dale came to know Christ and he was part of our Bible study on our high school campus. No thanks to me. Right. <clears throat> so and then it was, I think, uh, that same year uh, in January, I'm walking home from school with a friend named Robert Shelton, telling him that Jesus Christ is returning in January 1984 and he better get right. You better get right with Jesus because Jesus is coming back. So now I'm a false prophet. Fast forward a few years later, I'm playing in a Christian rock band because I think, you know, I don't know, we're going to get big or something. I'm dressing like Bono and I stand upon the stage and I'm so nervous. I'm trying to talk to people about Christ. And I was four sentences ahead of myself and I asked people to receive Satan into their life. And I had no idea what I'd said, but I saw all these smiling faces suddenly stop smiling. Again, false doctrine. It was a mistake, right? And so, but I, I look back and I'm like, look at all of these mistakes and trip ups. And I can't tell you how many people 
I wanted to share the gospel with but wouldn't because I was so afraid, just wouldn't open my mouth, walk away feeling guilt and conviction. Why didn't I, why didn't I share the gospel? So many times talking to people and feeling like I gave the wrong answer or didn't give the right answer. I can remember talking to people, starting off calm, and before I know it, I'm in an argument, and I'm trying to argue somebody into the kingdom. I'm like, what was that all about? And yet God and his grace was just kind of bringing me along, helped me understand that he is a good God, that he's gracious, and was granting me continual repentance and belief. Now I want to just share with you that for me personally, uh, evangelism has been a, it's been a journey and I am not by nature an extrovert. Some people think because I'm a pastor, I'm automatically extroverted. My default setting is to be introverted. If I could do anything I wanted, I would just stay in my office and read. Uh, but God has filled my heart with a love for him. And so that he fills me with his spirit. And when I cry out to him, I find myself more and more likely to open my mouth for Christ. Um and I would say that, you know, I was just chatting with somebody here just a few minutes ago. They said, I'm, I need to grow in evangelism. I'm like, me too. Um, I don't go stand on a corner at UCR because I'm some great, bold evangelist. I'll tell you why I go to UCR on a weekly basis. And this is just being straight up honest with you. I go to UCR on a weekly basis because if I don't have something on my calendar to get me out sharing the gospel, I'll stay in my office all week and be selfish. That's just me. I don't know what, where you're at, but I'm a pastor and it's very easy in my work environment to only be around Christians. I can be around Christians all week and never even interface with an unbeliever. But if something's on my calendar and other people are dependent upon me to show up and, and to help and to train, uh, I'm going to be there. And then I find, kind of like as Ray Comfort says, a lot of times I go out of the door with my feet dragging, but I come home with my heels clicking. It's like I go out by God's grace. I don't always feel like it, but we get out there and we're fellowshipping and we're sharing the gospel and we see the Lord use weakness for his glory. And every time I come back, the office energized, I preach the gospel for me, let's just be honest. I preach it for me. Um, yes, people need to get saved, and and we want to see people get to know Christ. We want to see people rescued from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But if I don't preach the gospel, my heart gets hard, and I start losing track of what God is doing in history. When I preach the gospel, it keeps me calibrated to what God is doing and what his heartbeat is. And so I want to challenge you is this in this class, you don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be Mr. and Mrs. Bold. You can be filled with all kinds of fear. In fact, it's better if you're full of fear. Um, you don't have to feel equipped. Um, you just come and bring your sorry sinful, Holy Spirit filled self to the Lord and say, God, I want to grow. And God's going to take your gifts 
and match them with other people's gifts in this body so that you can be part of this team sport called evangelism. Some of you are called to go out and publicly proclaim the gospel and do what the Bible says over and over and over again, preach the gospel. Some of you are called to preach the gospel publicly to unbelievers. Vast majority of us aren't. Most of us are called to share just like Mammer did in private settings to proclaim and herald the gospel one-on-one. Most of us are called to do that. All of us are called to pray. All of us are called to give. All of us are called to feed ourselves on the gospel and to encourage people in the body with the gospel. Um, All of us are called to live holy lives that put the gospel on display. Some of us are called to preach the gospel publicly and but all of us are called to pray for the preachers of the gospel. Is this making sense? So what I want to do is is I'm going to just run through kind of this is an overview of this class. <clears throat> um, I'm going to run through each lesson, and then we're going to send you guys with homework. I'm just giving you kind of like the the preview. The first lesson that we're going to hit is the God of the gospel. And if you you can turn here if you wish, but. Uh, Exodus 34 is a passage that I was reading this week and meditating on. That's another thing we'll talk about is the importance of sharing in your gospel. Do you know that passage? Oh, I, sorry. No, it's good. Yeah, it's I good. Love, oh, that one's like everything. It's incredible. It's amazing. So you have basically, remember Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. He says, I'm going to come and, and I'm going to put you in a rock and I'm going to hide you. And then I'm going to, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. He says in verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, right? Merciful, gracious, long suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, right? Keeping mercy for what? Thousands, probably thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children of the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? This is God declaring who he is. He is the Lord, the self-existent one. He is God. And as God defines himself, notice where he starts. He starts with some really good stuff. He says, when he's, I am merciful. That's the way God wants himself to be. He wants people to know him as a merciful God, as gracious. So he's giving mercy, not giving people the justice they deserve. He's giving grace to them, giving them good stuff they don't deserve. And he's long suffering. I think back to just, I've been a Christian now since I was 14. God has been long suffering with me. And he abounds in goodness. The gospel is good news. He abounds in goodness. And he tells the truth because he is good. And he keeps mercy. Now he's expanding with thousands And and what does this mercy entail? It's forgiveness, forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, sins, all the different varieties of describing our problem, this cancer, 
that courses through our veins, this thing called sin. But then he says, it's not until you get to this point that now he starts talking about, but by no means, I'm, I'm not just sweeping sin under the carpet. I'll have mercy. I'll forgive, but I don't just sweep it under the carpet. But I will visit the iniquity of fathers upon the children and the children's children. Visit. So our sins, right in naming himself, he wants us to, first of all, know how merciful, gracious, long-suffering, forgiving, merciful to thousands of generations he is. That's the first part of his name. The second part of his name is, I'm holy and righteous, and I'm not going to clear the guilty. There is something that is going to be done for sin, but it's not just a sweeping of, it's not like sin's no big deal. In fact, your sins are such a big deal. When you sin, it's not just an individual thing. We think that our sins are private. Right here in God naming who he is, your sins are public, and they have an impact on people outside of yourself. Your sins affect your children and their children and their children and generations that hate me. But he has mercy upon thousands of generations to those who love me. We actually see this played out. Turn to Numbers 14.33. I was reading this just yesterday. Numbers 14.33. You see this kind of visiting idea right here in in the Torah. So in Numbers 14.33, you've got, um, remember in this chapter, this is the Kadesh Kadesh Barnea situation where the glory of the Lord shows up. In fact, look at verse 18, first of all. The Lord is long-suffering, abundant mercy, forgiving iniquity, transgression. This is Moses reciting back to the Lord how what he has revealed himself to be. But then you've got these this complaining, and um, you've got the of uh, God's uh, telling the fathers, verse 29, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire, these, you know, so the people would not go into the land. So their carcasses are going to fall. Verse 31, but your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in and they shall know the land. But verse 33, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity or your whoredom until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. This is part of what it means for iniquity to be visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Israel would not go in and take the land. They come back and complain, except for Caleb and Joshua, right? They complain against the Lord. God says, your carcasses are now going to fall and your children are going to see you die. And you are all worried about them, but now they're going to bear the brunt of your lack of obedience and lack of belief. They're going to watch their parents die person after person, and they will bear the brunt of your infidelity. Our sins don't just affect us. They affect our children as we see put on display right here in Exodus, or I mean, Numbers 14. But the good news is, and we won't take time to this. We'll get to this later. 
Psalm 90, God is still gracious even to the generation that he pronounced this judgment upon. And he's still gracious to the children as they go in to take the land. And so the God of the gospel is a God of mercy. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. We want to front load the God of the gospel with that. That's who he reveals himself to be. But he's not going to sweep a, a sin under the carpet. He sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross to bear the wrath. And then he deals with us on that basis. But if we don't want the manna that comes from heaven, then we will have the judgment fall upon ourselves. So this is the God of the gospel. And by the way, we'll, when we get to this lesson, we'll look at John 17 and we'll talk about how the, as God reveals himself. This is a God who's triune. This is a father and a son and a father who delights in his son and a son who delights in the father and a son who sends the Holy Spirit so that we would be empowered to go out and share the gospel of grace. Uh, this is what God's doing in history. John Piper says this, all of history is moving towards one great goal, the white hot worship of God and his son among all the peoples of the earth. Missions is not that goal. And we could even say evangelism is not that goal. It is the means for that reason. It is the second greatest human activity in the world. Everything is flowing to the worship of God. When we get to the end of history, everybody's going to be worshiping the lamb. Yeah. Worthy, worthy, worthy. There will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be there. God will win. He will draw near to his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. That's where the river of history is flowing. And if the river of history is flowing towards God and, and the Father's delight in his son, then why would we want to be involved in getting nostalgic about manure, as Paul would say? Manure is like dung, trash. We get all caught up in manure when all of history is going towards Christ. All of it is going towards Christ. So that's the God of the gospel. Let's talk about the next lesson. We'll talk about exactly what is the gospel. The gospel is good news. Let's look over at um, Romans 10 real quick. The gospel is good news. So we've got the God of the gospel. God reveals himself as merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. He's forgiving having mercy upon thousands. How does he communicate this message? He communicates it through good news. Look what the scripture says. Uh, we'll take a look at verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Look at verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How is that going to happen, though, in reality? Well, there's something that needs to be preached. Verse 14. How then shall they call upon him? How are they going to call on Christ in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Glad tidings and gospel are the same idea. 
glad tidings, gospel, good news. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It literally means good announcement, good, a good announcement. When we say evangelism, that's a transliteration that comes from the Greek word eve or you is good. Evangelism is announcement. It's a good announcement. If we're really going to preach the gospel, we're preaching something that's good. Just like God is good. He's gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, right? Having mercy upon thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. That's the way the gospel starts. The gospel is good news. Um, Now, to get the good news implies that there's already built-in bad news about humanity. And you don't have to go very far at all to see that there's bad news everywhere. Just look at the, the statistics are befuddling that we see before us in our... If you didn't know the Bible... That the Bible indicates that the human heart is always evil, thinking continually evil all the time, as it says in Genesis 6, you'd be befuddled by the statistics. If you start with the default setting that human beings are naturally good, then where do you come up with all the, what is it? I think the latest statistics are um, around 35 to 40% of all women have had abortions that... 98% of all men have looked at pornography. Um, 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Um, And you look at like even just the narcotics use. We're we're talking about like uh, medication abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Um, It's like astounding. If human beings are by nature good, who's doing all these things? Um, the default setting that we see in our world, the world kind of thinks that the world is kind of like it's a wonderful life, right? In a wonderful life, there's one bad guy. Who's the bad guy? No, and it, it's a wonderful life, the movie. Oh. Mr. Potter. And it, it's a wonderful life. There's only one bad guy. It's Mr. Potter. Everybody else is relatively good, right? But there's one bad guy. And at the end, all the good people are celebrating Right. And that, but there's still the one bad guy in the Bible. There's only one good guy. Everybody else is bad. Everybody else is Mr. Potter, but Jesus Christ comes and the Bible says that Christ died for what? The ungodly, right? God is a God who justifies the ungodly. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet, Sinners, Christ died for us. So the Bible flips its wonderful life up on its head and says, we're all Mr. Potter. Jesus Christ is the one but came to grab us and take us out of Pottersville and bring us into Bedford Falls, right? That's reality. And so the good news is it's an announce or the evangelism is an announcement of good news of Jesus Christ through the person of work. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's good news for hell-deserving sinners through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And we get to go announce this. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on really distinguishing exactly what the gospel is. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what the gospel is. 
There always has been, because the devil's always trying to pervert the gospel. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He said that every other religion offers advice, but only Christianity offers good news. Advice is counsel about how to do something that needs to be done. News is a report about something that has already happened, and there's nothing more that needs to be done. Do you see the difference? The gospel is the good news of Jesus' burial, death, burial, resurrection, which was the decisive victory over sin and Satan and death. He has paid for sins once for all. He has guaranteed that all things will be made new again by his resurrection from the dead. Christianity is not an advice religion. Here's what you have to do. It is a news religion. Here's what Jesus has done. It's not advice. It's good news. See, it's Spurgeon in his book, All of Grace. Raise your hand if you've read this book, All of Grace. Okay, this, is, this was the biggest produced or published book of Spurgeon's lifetime, over a million copies, many different languages. Everybody should read this book, All of Grace. Everybody should read this book. He starts off with the story of a pastor who went to bring some money to a poor widow's house. And he came at noon when he knew that she would be there. He knocked on the door several times. She never answered. The following Sunday, that widow came to church. He walks up to the widow and says, where were you? I brought, a, I brought something for you. She says, oh, that was you? I thought it was somebody there to collect the rent. And so I didn't answer the door. And then Spurgeon uses that. He says, when we start talking about the gospel and about Christianity, People a lot of times think that we're coming to tell them their duty and collect the rent and they don't want to answer the door. But he says the gospel rightly understood is not coming to exact something from us. It's coming to give us something. And that is grace. If that woman would have known that it was her pastor, that he was there with something to give her, she would have opened the door. But she thought it was the rent collector. And we have to understand the gospel as something that comes to us that God does for us and we open our hearts. But, and that needs to affect us and also affect our preaching so that when we go out and preach the gospel, people don't think that we're coming to collect the rent, but we're coming to give them good news, not just offer some advice or to exact something from them. What we're going we're gonna to delve into that when we get into that topic. Let's talk about grazing on the gospel quickly. <clears throat> we'll spend some time on this in our third lesson that um, Paul says to Timothy, he says to him that you need to give attention to the doctrine, but also to yourself so that you may save yourself and those who hear you. That's uh, 1 Timothy four sixteen. He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, speaking of the gospel. In doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The gospel is for you first. We, you and I must feed on the manna of the gospel. You and I must give attention to ourselves first. We must drink deeply of Christ. If you drink deeply of the love of Christ, guess what happens? Second Corinthians um, we have 2 uh, Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us and it will compel you to do things that you are not able to do in and of yourself. When you get filled up with the idea that the father, as the father has loved the son, so the son loves you. That's what gives you the motivation and the power. 
2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him. What is it that's going to motivate us to go down that river of history and want to live for Christ rather than ourselves? It's not when we think that God's coming to exact rent from us. It's when we understand that God has come and he's loving us through Christ and that overwhelms us with the expulsive power of a new affection to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us. We get this backwards. We're going to try to make sure that we don't get that backwards. Fourth lesson, we're going to talk about the gospel group, that this God of the gospel who's come to bring you good news and he feeds you on the manna of the gospel has not left you by yourself, but he's put you on a team. We're going to spend a little time here in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is rebuking the Corinthians about saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. But he reminds them that we're all really co-laborers with God himself, that God is the ultimate evangelist, right? This whole gospel thing didn't start with any of us here. It's really God who brings the increase. You know, we water, somebody else plants, uh, but it's God who brings the increase. First Corinthians 3, 9, for we are God's fellow workers. Guess what? If we're just coming alongside working with God, working with Christ, that's like playing on basketball with LeBron James times 5,000. I mean, imagine playing on a team where LeBron James is the main guy. You just get called up for one game and people come up and they say, oh, you guys played such a great game. And all you did was sit the bench and you just watched LeBron. But it's worse than that. Not only that, we, we were doing things destructive that we're, th- we're throwing water on the court and our sins are messing things up, but he's still going to win, right? God is the one. He's the evangelist for God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. And then we get to be co-laborers with him and we just kind of join on his coattails, right? And... And then, so what glory is there to us? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I got drafted into this this thing, so there's no pay or glory to me. I'm just doing my duty. But we get put into this group, and every one of us in this room, we have gifts. Some of us have speaking gifts. Some of us have serving gifts. And as we do this thing together, because we are saved in Christ who loves us, there's no reason for guilt or law, or a sense of like, oh, if I don't go out and do this, God's not going to like me. He's going to hate me. Really, God saves you from before the foundation of the world. And then he's trying to motivate you to go out and share the gospel because if you don't share the gospel, he's going to hate you because he loves them. Is that the gospel? No, he moves us. He compels us by love. And it's love that will motivate us. And, 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 what, and part of what will motivate you is realizing that you're on a team. You're not by yourself. Lastly, we're going to talk about going with God and his gospel group. What exactly does this look like? What are the, what are the methods that we see in Matthew 28 and other places in the Bible as we go out with God to spread the gospel 
what are all the varieties of things that we see in the pages of Scripture? We see the Ethiopian eunuch coming up and just talking about Isaiah in a, in a cart. You see Jesus sitting at the water at the well speaking to a woman. You see Paul going out and preaching in, in the market, uh, commanding people to repent. You see all different varieties, but what you see consistently is the use is that people are preaching the gospel. They're declaring the gospel of the king. They're telling the gospel because the gospel is ultimately for people's good. And so it's not a kind of, hey, would you like to think about this? It's a command. We go out and we preach it because it's what people need. If, some, if a house is burning down and there's a bunch of people in the house you walk in the house, you don't say, hey, you know, I was wondering if I could share a little something with you. Do you think you might want to get out of the house and escape the fire? No, you come in and you herald it. It's good news. There's a path right here. We can get out of this burning down house. I've got great news for you. You're tied to the bed. You can't even get out yourself. But this fireman named Jesus Christ is coming up. He's going to pick you up. All you need to do is cling to him and he's going to take you out for sure. You will be out of this house Lickety split. You just cling to Christ. That's good news. And we proclaim it and we command it. Let me end on this and then we'll pray. We don't do this alone. John Gill says, Towards these, Christ's heart is always is. His eye is upon them and knows them and where they are. And therefore, he will look them up, find them out, and they shall be brought to believe in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And for the sakes of these... In order to select and separate them from the rest is the gospel preached and continued and they are brought in. Christ is the one that's on the prowl. He's the one that's looking. We get to join this lion in his uh, gospel proclamation. Look at your um, your uh, schedule for the homework and the readings. I'll send out reminders and I'm always going to be up here for questions afterwards and I'm always going to show up early to take questions as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for being our God. You are merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, having mercy upon thousands, but by no means clearing the guilty. We thank you, Lord, that you did send Christ for us guilty ones so that if we would simply believe we can be embraced by this good news. We pray, Father, that we would graze and feed ourselves in the gospel. We thank you for putting us into the body of Christ, not leaving us by ourselves with Christ as our head and our captain, that we can go boldly out together to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to grow in this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.